Hey everyone, welcome back. In many of my past episodes, I've talked about my time at a company called Spreadfast. I'll link out to an episode called A Tale of Two EXs, EX Employee Experience, where I basically combine all my toxic workplace experiences, which was most of them, and then this one amazing company where I had an incredible manager named Matt. The company had strategy, a vision, like everyone knew what was going on. We had fun. There were smart people. There was no like ego. It was just one of the most career defining experiences to show me when I bring you this show, like this is possible. It does exist because I lived it. So Spreadfast was one of the most enjoyable places I've ever worked for. And I've talked a lot about in many episodes, the manager I had at that company was Matt. So this company spread fast before I worked for Pingboard, they're proof of what I say on the show that a good employee experience will drive engagement and reduce turnover and drive productivity. That was one of the most dialed in companies and they didn't have a huge budget. They didn't have like Google's logo and all the weight and like, you know, like all the, all the resources they may do with what they had, but they definitely put their people first. And I think that is no coincidence. The company was as successful as it was. So I also say on the show that 70% of the employee experience is the relationship between the employee and their manager. And that's why driving engagement can be so hard for all of you who listen. So in this episode, I had on my manager at that company, Matt, Matt McAllister. He is the manager I'm talking about in so many other episodes. We're going to talk about what made our team so productive, what made him so skilled at managing so many different personalities on a team and why we were all so happy and engaged because he had a lot to do with that. So. I hope you learn from his management style and his recommendations. And what's really cool is he even shares some of his failures. So listen first as you as the HR people ops person, but then maybe share this episode out with your managers. Not every company can afford management training. So this is a, an easy way to add value to your, your people managers and say, hey, listen to this episode and what this manager has to say just for the sake of rounding out all the different ways that your job can be done and hearing from other perspectives. So without further ado, here we go. Jumping into mine and Matt's episode. First of all, thank you for being my first non-traumatizing manager. But today we're going to talk a little bit about like what made you so great at, at running our team. <laughs> That's too kind. I will happily take 1% of the credit for that. Uh, Spreadfast was a great place to be at. And it was, a, it was a culture first organization, which made it much, much easier to be a good manager. But we did have a great team. Did they run you guys through management training? Because I felt like all the managers were excellent and all the employees were like, yeah, I'm great. Our, our team's great too. Like, What did they put you as managers through to get you all to be so high functioning? You know, if I think about I think we all, we get lucky every once in a while in our careers and we work at places that feel culturally connected uh, is maybe a good way to say that, where, where it feels like everyone's there because they want to be there. Not everyone always loves their job, but um, Spreadfast was the first place similar to you that I worked at that felt that way. And one of the consistencies that I see across my experience there, my experience today at Yelp is a commitment to training. Uh, and that ties into onboarding. Yeah, I, It always shocks me how few companies uh, dedicate extensive resources to onboarding. It's, it's almost like an afterthought in most places. So Spreadfast was great at training. They had an entire training team. Uh, I think Spreadfast also, maybe not on purpose, but created a culture where leaders spent a lot of time together cross-functionally. Um, it's pretty easy to, to find yourself in silos, especially if you're, you're working remotely or, or working for, for companies where people are all over the place. Um, at Spreadfast, it was leaders spending time with leaders as much as leaders were spending time with their teams, which 
made it one easier to learn from other people, uh, especially as, as a young manager myself back then. Uh, it, it was so great to see good shining examples of managers yourself, but also to have the backing of a training team and a group who wanted you to be a good manager, which is not always the case. A lot of time, uh, managers have just as little support as anyone else in the organization. And it is an incredibly challenging, tough job. So to feel support and to have great examples and to be surrounded by people who want to help, I think it, it created an environment where it was easier to be a good manager. How many employees were we? We were about 600, right? I think at the, at the, at the end, we were about 600 global employees. Yeah. And our team at any given time was really no more than five or six individual contributors reporting up to you. We got up to nine or 10. I inherited a few other teams throughout throughout my time there, but I was only there for, for about a year and a half. So I think our, our immediate team was about five or six. And then we had a, a total of my team at about nine or 10 people on it. What do you think is the appropriate threshold for a manager to realistically manage? Like what's the number of people that you think is realistic to like maintain connection, understand each person's unique things about them and where they want to take their career, et cetera. Like what's your magic number? I, you know, this is a tricky question because I don't, I don't think there's a one size fits all. I don't think there's, it's three or no more. I think this comes down to something that goes unspoken a lot when we talk about managers and the skills of being a manager and it's team strategy, meaning it to me, it's more about how your team is organized uh, and what your team does and how you as either the creator of that team or the leader of that team uh, dictates the purpose of your team and the goals of your team dictates how many people should be on the team, what they should be doing, and how many should be reporting to you. Now, I think it's pretty challenging to have a great relationship with more than 10 direct reports. I think it's pretty challenging to have a great relationship with 10 people in general. Uh, so I certainly have seen it be challenging. There are times when people have been on leave or, or I've had to bring teams in and I've had upwards of seven people reporting directly to me. And while it doesn't feel untenable, it definitely feels less like a strategic relationship where you're helping each other grow and spending time together outside of just weekly one-on-ones. So I, I tend to arrange my teams with leaders, meaning right now I've got three direct reports, just three on a team of close to 15. And then we've got ladders of teams doing certain things with certain goals, with specific purposes. And those ladders make sense because of the purpose and the strategy that we worked really hard to dictate years ago. So I think as long as you can spend at least an hour of dedicated one-on-one -on -one time with your direct reports every single week, and provide space and time for them to come to you for another at least hour, if not three hours a week, if they need help, if something's blocking them, if a project is off the rails. If you don't have time to meet those basic demands, you probably have too many direct reports. Now, that might mean six, that might mean 60. Uh, but I, I do think it's about how much time can I offer to my people to both understand where they're coming from, what they're working on, but also step in to help if needed. Well, I think I saw your approach work very well. You were very emotionally available as a manager. I was pregnant at the time and you were very supportive of appointments. And I can even remember Naomi was a, uh, someone on our team. I said, Matt asked me how my appointment went. And she was, she's Gen Z. She was new to the workforce. So she never knew anything different other than it was like Google and Spreadfast. So she had incredible companies to base this off of. And she's like, yeah, is that not normal? I was like, no, no one ever asks you how you're doing when you're pregnant. You just like keep trying to perform and hope no one notices that like you're tired. Um, so you were very emotionally available. You always had time. 
if there was an issue or an idea or something I couldn't figure out, you could always step away to go in a conference room and figure it out with me, whiteboard it. Your meetings were super efficient, but like it was because you knew us as people. I think a lot of teams and companies have very capable, good, high-performing employees, but the manager is like the, the, the piece that makes the teams dysfunctional. And then the manager is frustrated because the team isn't performing and they're not hitting their numbers. And then the team's frustrated at the manager, but it's really like, it's a, it's a working relationship that has to be worked on and you have to build trust. And you do that by the recurring one-on-one. And like, I really respected that team meeting that we had where we would get together like every two week bi-weekly, we talk about what's working, what's not, what it was like our metrics meeting. What did you do to make that meeting so effective? Because I hate meetings, but I never hated that meeting. I was always excited for that meeting. This is all going to sound cliche, but foundation matters so much with team. Like if you think about it, we're all just, uh, we're a collection of humans, like bringing our different skills and experiences to the table. And we all have uh, a different level of potential. Our ceiling is at certain limits at that time in our life. And we are all hoping to come together to accomplish something, something, whatever our shared goal is. Uh, that's an incredibly hard thing to do as a group. I mean, we're all, we all have families. Imagine your family trying to accomplish one stated goal together. It's, I don't know about your family, but it'd be a nightmare for mine. Uh, so even family would have an immense amount of trouble doing what corporate teams have to do, which is come together to achieve a goal, all with separate skills, experiences, tactics, and specialties. So the foundation, what I mean by that is it's impossible to do that unless you all know where you're going. You all know why you're going there and you all have a general sense and general sense is important of how you're going to get there so that we can show up at one time with all of our shared experiences and all of our skills and all of our specialties. And if we all agree on those three things, we're coming together. We're bringing all those separate points of ourselves and coming together to go on that journey together. And I can tell you, I think that the times when those meetings sucked and plenty of those meetings sucked with us too, was not because we'd all had a bad week or this campaign didn't go well. It's because the foundation wasn't there because I had clearly not communicated a change in our journey, a shift that we needed to make, something that might've been in my head, but not in your heads. And when we can all be in one room and agree, here's where we're going, here's why we're going there, and here's generally how we're going to get there then we're playing in the guardrails and that's when it gets fun. That's when it's everyone bringing their best version of themselves because they know they can contribute to moving forward and not just toss out. A lot of people feel this need to contribute so strongly and without knowing how to contribute and then a direction to point themselves towards. Contribution can be frustrating. It can be exhausting. Uh, But when you all throw in ideas, even though 60% of them might never work, but they're all headed in the right direction, it feels like you are running a race together. And although every mile might not be easy, in fact, most of them feel tough. You're still moving in the right direction as a team. And that feels like every meeting is a celebration. Every meeting is buzzing with energy because you all understand where you're going. Uh, But I I think that's where managers get also the least amount of support. Managers are often promoted as individual contributors. Managers are often promoted as go now manage people. That is not the job. The job is strategy first. The job is what is our company trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do? And what what is my role and my team's role in that? And then hiring great people to fit within that strategy. And in the absence of good strategy is when you see well-meaning managers struggle to inspire and struggle to keep people online and struggle to keep people on path. 
Because how do you if no one knows where they're headed? Well, and also how do you when nobody respects each other because the manager's just kind of running amok because there are a lot of managers, to your point, don't know what they're signing up for. I call it the, the manager fallacy a little bit, is that everyone assumes that just because you are a manager or you, you know a manager, that they know what they're doing. They're the manager. They know what they're doing. I promise you, no one knows what they're doing. <laughs> everyone is, is grasping as much as anyone else. Uh, and being a manager is incredibly challenging. It's a set of skills that you don't go to school for. No one teaches you how to be a manager. Uh, and I think the best managers are the first to admit, I don't know everything. In fact, I know less than you. Our job is to work together here. And my job is different than your job. And that was the turning point for me as a manager. And I really probably felt that for the first time at Spreadfast, honestly, Christy, mostly because I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, I felt so over my head. I was working incredible, incredibly long hours, not because I was a workaholic at the time, although I was, uh, but because I did not have a clue what I was doing. And at some point, the flip in the switch was, well, I could either try and manhandle this myself and wrap my arms around it and control it and just squeeze it <laughs> to death, but I'll, I'll have my arms around it. Yeah. But I think about team ceilings, that means the ceiling was as high as my ceiling was. And at Spreadfast, my ceiling was pretty low in the early days. It took a switch for me to say, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. How do I surround myself with a bunch of people who do? Yeah. How can I focus on the right place for me to work, which is dictating strategy and how we're going to get in the big picture, how we're going to work with our sales team to grow this company overall, and then find a bunch of incredibly talented people that know what they're doing and can head in the right direction. I mean, that and you never micromanaged me or others. You never would be like, where is this? What's going on with this? Because I never really gave you any reason and neither did the others to not trust us. Because you gave us space, we delivered. Like I wanted to reward that behavior maybe to be left alone to go do my creative stuff. And I remember times where I would say, Matt, what should I do here? And you would be like, what do you think we should do? And I'd be like, oh, am I? And you're like, yeah, like, what do you want to do? Like, I'll give you my opinion, but you've got this. And I'd be like, I do got this. An aha moment. What did your managerial career look like before Spreadfast? I think in the case I was, I graduated from school and was a manager at 22 uh, in a healthcare at a hospital. I was the marketing manager at a hospital and had no clue what I was doing in any sense, uh, much less managing people. Um, and got some great promotions because I was willing to work really hard and accepted a new job where ultimately I had over 30 people on my team and six different markets across the country. And if you can imagine someone trying to micromanage 30 people at once in five different markets across the country, the domestic United States, that was my job for about two years. And that is how I handled it. Uh, I was a pain to work with. I was a pain to work for. I saw my team's performance as a reflection of myself. I saw my team's success and my team's happiness and my people's day-to-day um, -day work as a reflection of my skills, of my experience. Um, and it was a really tricky place to be in. Uh, I expected that if I could raise everyone to my ceiling, then we would win. And the flip that switched at Spreadfast was realizing that my ceiling is a, is a five-foot ceiling. And this potential of our team could be on a hundred-foot ceiling. And if I'm expecting to bring everyone to my ceiling, then ultimately I'm limiting myself and limiting others. And that's a, to me, that's what micromanaging is. It is limiting the potential ceiling of your team to what your ceiling is, to making it look like you would do it 
which ultimately is just a limiting factor. It's, you can't get as far as one person can get. That one person might be Steve Jobs. You can still only get as far as Steve Jobs could have gotten. So imagine if 10 people in all of their infinite potential and ceilings are working the way that they work and are chasing their ceiling, then you are not as dependent on what I know and what I can do and how great of a copywriter I can be and how great of an event planner I can be. And if we're limiting to my potential, we're going to fail. We are destined to fail. So me stepping back and saying, well, my role is different. My role is not to be a shining example of the best role on my team. My role is not to be the webinar pro and the marketing ops expert and the paid media expert. My job is to figure out how to be the best strategist, how to hire the best people, and then how to help them achieve the highest version of their ceiling. And then we take teams from 30 people trying to match what I can do to at SpreadFast, 10 people trying to go 20 feet above what I could do. And my job then is to get out of their way and help them clear the space above them so they can take one extra foot at a time. So they can reach their potential slowly more and more till eventually you have a high performing team because you did the strategy, you're headed in the right direction and everyone feels like they're chasing the best version of what they can do and not the best version of what their manager could have done. Man, I think I just got my clip for social. Like just, but thanks for listening, everybody. There is so much power in like letting go and trusting that you made the right hiring decisions, but focusing on strategy is what I keep hearing you say. You gotta, you have to be guiding everyone still. That's why goals are so important. We always had clear goals at SpreadFast and you would sit in a meeting with each of us individually and say, do you understand? Or we'd work on them together. I think goals are important. I think goals are really important. And marketing is challenging because marketing, we work in marketing. I'm a lifelong marketer and marketers on one half are now scientists driven by uh, database decisions, great attribution returns and making decisions against the database goals with database inputs. The other part of marketing that makes that really challenging, I think the why is, is more important than the goal is we also have to be creative. We have to steal attention. We have to do things that stand out. We have to do things that are different than our competition. There is no playbook per se. It is as important to know what your numbers were. It is, it is more important, Christy, that you know why those numbers mattered, that you know why webinar registration numbers translated to revenue for a company. And you could connect those dots yourself. Because that allowed you the freedom to say, well, how we get there can be a hundred different ways. If it's just webinar registrations, then you're going to go off in a corner and just do what every company's ever done to produce webinar registrations. But if you can say, I do this and it translates to this, 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 and this, I hopefully have unlocked this world of potential in your head that ultimately says our goal is to get here. How we get there is up to us. So why was just as valuable as Hey, here's your quarterly goals. Yes. Because I remember pushing back on one. I said, this feels too big. And we had a discussion about how to achieve it. And then I went and like crushed it. Remember the 1200 registration webinar where we had to like buy more seats on a platform because we couldn't let everybody in. And I remember you looked at me and you were like, you didn't think you were going to even hit this goal. And you broke the platform, like golf clap for you. And I was like, you're right. Um, So Matt, we were talking about how a lot of managers don't get training. A lot of companies don't realize how much the manager affects productivity and engagement overall. And they, they think they don't have money to focus on it, which is ironic because if they invested in their managers, they would probably raise up healthier, happier teams that were engaged and they stayed. Yada, yada. You could listen to my other episodes if anybody wants to deeper dive into that. But what books would you recommend, Matt, if someone is at a company that's not offering training because they can't for whatever reason, 
What is your advice to a newer manager or someone who wants to level up? What should they be reading? Well, first, I got to address the first part of what you said about how sometimes companies have managers, don't train managers, and have trouble translating the strategy of why a manager is necessary. And this this goes out to, to hiring people. This goes out to people out there. First, I'm a big fan of first principles. Ask the simple questions. If you're not doing manager training, then why do you have managers? Uh, not in the train them or don't have them, but literally, what is the point of a manager? What is the role of a manager at any company, whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people? Uh, the idea behind having a manager is that you need another layer of leadership. There, there has to be some reason for that person to be there. Uh, I can't imagine hiring someone without a reason for them to be there, which is generally what translates to no onboarding, no training, uncertainty in what their role is. If you don't have manager training, you should not have managers. Uh, Otherwise, I challenge you to ask the first principle question of why do we have managers? And if the answer sounds anything like to get the most from our teams, to elevate the performance of our individual contributors, to more support these teams so we can grow faster, all of that sounds like new skills that they're not picking up as ICs. And if you're not teaching them new skills, then why have them in the first place? Now, your other question, um, what should you read? What should you do? You should be in therapy. Yeah, you should be in therapy. You should be obsessed with human psychology. You should care about humans as people uh, and who they are in and outside of work and what they care about. Um, That's not teachable. I think in some cases, some people are just able to understand that human potential comes from human happiness and trying to squeeze the life out of a team generally results in worse performance. because unhappy people don't perform well. So I think that's one thing is your job first as a manager is to realize that unless you are curing cancer, you're not curing cancer. Uh, And and that the amount of responsibility that is on your shoulders as a manager is not something to be taken lightly. And that could be stressful and that can be scary. And in my opinion, should be. If you're signing up to dictate how someone's experience in their career goes, then you have to be aware of the impact you can make. You have to be aware that you can both make a good impact. You could also make a great impact. You could also make a horrendous impact on someone. And if you're not at least starting with, how do I be a good human to these people? Uh, That's the starting point. Before you're picking up skills and tactics and how to run solid one-on-ones and what should a team meeting look like and what are OKRs? Uh, It is, how can I show up? Am I in a place where I feel like I can show up for these people as a human? And I can understand that what they spend eight to 12 hours doing with us a day is a part of their life and not their entire life. Uh, that's something that I I had to go through personally for myself before I could really bring that to my role as a manager. Today, it's the thing I'm most proud of today. I think it's why I'm an okay manager today is because I can look at people like you, Christy, and say, you're a marketing genius. You're an absolute professional in helping companies tell their story really well. You're also a mom. You also live in Austin. You also have an incredible social life. You also have a personal life outside of work. And if those things are fulfilling, then you're going to be a better marketing genius. You're going to be a better messaging expert. That's the starting point. Um, As far as books, I think anything by Patrick Lencioni is often pretty good. Just get over the stories and the writing. Uh, It can be a little dry, but the lessons are always there. And if you can read deeper into the lessons, I think that's useful. I used to be like, Matt, I've read this book, Radical Candor, and I feel like you do this without even realizing it. It's like... Because I never read Radical Candor, yeah. I'm going to plug one of my favorites right now. It's called 101 Tough Conversations to Have with Employees. 
And it's not meant to be red cover to cover. It's like a quick guide when someone's like, I want to raise. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, this person has done nothing. Wait, hold on. It's a good resource to have on hand. That's a good one. We talk about strategy, and I think that goes unmentioned a lot in managerial conversations. Playing to Win is a great strategy book. Playing to Win is something I recommend everyone reads, whether you're managing your team or not. Uh, But it is a must read to me if you are managing a team. It is how do you build strategy? (laughs) Because ultimately, people are a part of strategy. And in the absence of good strategy, no one's happy. I mean, playing to win. I think it's also, it's hard to see our own perspective. It's hard to see outside of the world we see every day. Read some bad examples, some really entertaining bad examples. If you haven't read Bad Blood, if you haven't read Super Pumped, if you haven't read Uncanny Valley, if you haven't read Disrupted, all our versions of tech stories gone bad, all have incredible examples of managers who put themselves first. We tend to have examples ourselves of a manager who wasn't great. Um, And I honestly find a lot of value in going deep into that. Why weren't they great? And what are they doing? Maybe how do I have some crossover? How How did people feel working for and with these people? And how do I make people feel when they work for or with me? So I think read up on strategy. To be a great manager is to be a great strategist. Uh, I think anything by Patrick Lencioni talks about how people work together. Um, I think it's also important for a manager, whether you're a manager, senior manager, director, VP, or in the C-suite, it's important to know that your job has changed from working on one team to working on a leadership team. And it's called the team one mindset, meaning if, if you're an executive, and I've been lucky enough to, to get to be an executive at a few great companies, My first team is actually my executive peers uh, because it's so vital that we build the right strategy that dictates down to all these teams. I needed to learn how to show up and be a different team member to my peers than I did to my team, the people who reported to me. And I think that's also incredibly hard to challenge to take on as a new manager because you're not just managing down your people. You now have a responsibility to go fight for resources. You now have a responsibility to dictate your small team's role in the bigger company's place and their strategy. Uh, so I, I would absolutely encourage you to read anything by Patrick Lencioni about executive management, about team one, our, our first team is, is sometimes how it's referenced. But how do I show up in different areas of the company as a leader to ultimately create the best working environment for my team? Well, how does it feel, you know, you laid the foundation of what it was like early as a manager. How does it feel to get all this feedback that you were an excellent manager and you are a huge part of why I'm getting to do and lean into my strengths now? You know, people like you, Christy, are the reason why I do what I do. Um, Early in my career, it was about being a great individual contributor. It was about figuring out a way to create a ton of value myself. Uh, It was the chip on my shoulder. It was the unconventional background I had. The story I told myself is if I could be the smartest person in the room, if I could work harder than anyone else in the room, if I could come up with more ideas than anyone else in the room, then I'll win, then I'll figure out a way to create my own path towards success. Uh, And I did that for a while. And, And let's not be dishonest. It can get you pretty far in the early days. Being willing to work harder than anyone else and take on more than anyone else does come with rewards in the early days. It was not sustainable. And ultimately, uh, in, in my own personal well-being journey, realized that it's not what I love to do. Uh, it turns out what I love to do is to get the most out of great humans. And it turns out that what I love to do is show human beings that there is a way to do great, fulfilling work while also living a great, fulfilling life. 
and they don't have to sacrifice each other. And I have now several examples of teams who don't work 80 hours a week. In fact, I tell them to get offline. I tell them stop working on Saturdays, uh, but they're doing better work than anyone else in the company because we've worked so hard in the time we have to get the most out of these people. My role is no longer to be the smartest person in the room. In fact, if I am, then I've made a massive mistake. Uh, my role is no longer to be the best marketer. If I know trends before everyone else, then again, I am making a huge mistake. Um, I see my role today in my career, whether I'm, I'm leading marketing teams, advising startups, uh, whatever I do in the future, is my the impact that I can have on the humans who are around me. And I think it, it was lucky. <laughs> I stumbled into having a few decent opportunities where, where companies trusted me when they maybe shouldn't have. Uh, and timing that with, with a lot of my own self-discovery about who I was as a person, a manager, an employee coincided with having great people like you, Christy, who were just as willing to work hard, but also just as willing to embrace that work was just a part of life. You get talked about a lot in our little alumni spread fast little crew. We don't keep in as close a touch because that's just how life unfolds. Time marches on, but you know, spread fast was four years ago, but when I am talking to someone from Spreadfast, it's usually also lumped in at some point. Like, how's Matt doing? Have you talked to Matt? Have you talked to Matt? Someone's always recently talked to Matt, somewhat recently. There's a maybe in our next episode, because I'll have you on again. I forgot to ask you. We'll tell the story about how Naomi and I accidentally emailed like 300,000 people incorrectly and how you handled <laughs> that very nicely. Um, Matt, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story and what's worked and not worked for you. I think the biggest takeaway for me is how you said to lean into other stories where things don't go well. You don't just have to learn how to be excellent. In fact, the best example you could be to your team is an example of failing. Uh, the best example you could be is an example of a real human being who's trying really hard and is not always making the right decisions. And the louder and more vocal you can be about that, the more you encourage your team to try new things, to push the boundary and to be okay to fail too. Yeah. And this is the perfect way to end the episode because every one-on-one -on -one with you felt like I was at church and I was leaving like, I know what to do next and I feel fulfilled and I feel like I can do it and I can handle this. And you just have this quality about you that's just like, everything's going to be okay. You don't got to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I want managers to hear that too. Just keep learning. Leaders are readers. Just keep studying, keep reading, learn from your mistakes and just chill. Your team will like surprise you. If you let go of the, the reins a little bit. If you set the right foundation, that's the key, right, Christy? Without the right foundation, without the right hires, it doesn't matter how great of a manager you are. So be great strategically, hire great, and then realize everyone's a human. Well, thank you for coming on, Matt. We'll have you on again. Huge fan of your show. Huge fan of you, Christy. So excited to see you. Um, can't wait to not listen to this episode, but to listen to all the future episodes. At the rate I ask you questions, me too. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.